For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Welcome, everyone. I want to start this evening uh, talking about a teaching from Dogen, our 13th century founder in Japan. This is a text he wrote called the um, Mountains and Waters Sutra, Sanskrit Kyo, or you could say the Landscape Sutra. We've talked about it before here, but um, it may be new to some of you. Uh, Dogen wrote a, a great number of uh, essays. Uh, this is the one that he designates as a sutra. Wait, could you hit the button? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Okay. So, um, Yeah, so this essay is about the mountains and waters, or uh, that's a, those two compounds together uh, mean landscape uh, in Chinese and Japanese. Um, so I'm going to read uh, a few parts of this to start, and then we're going to talk about a word that I've just learned. I think it's a German word called um, what, um, what? Um, so anyway, um, so then said, seeing mountains and waters has differences depending on the species. That is to say, there are those who see water as a jewel necklace. Nevertheless, that is not seeing jewel necklaces as water. As what forms would we see that which they take to be water? Their jewel necklaces are, we see as water. There are those who see water as beautiful flowers, but they don't see flowers as water. Hungry ghosts see water as raging fire, as pus and blood. Dragons and fish see Palaces and pavilions. Some may see water as precious substances and jewels, or as forests and walls, or as the natural state of pure liberation, or as the real human body, or as the characteristics of the body and nature of the mind. People see it as water. It is an interdependent sea of killing and enlightening. So elsewhere it talks about, again, about fish seeing water one way, humans another, hungry goats otherwise. So, yeah, so it is established, though, and continues that what is seen differs according to the species. For the moment, we should question this. Do you say that in viewing one object, the views are varied. Do you say it is misapprehending multiple forms as one object? 
at the peak of effort, one should exert further effort to be either one or dual. So he also says, Buddhists said all things ultimately liber are ultimately liberated, have no abode. We should know that although they are liberated and have no, no bondage, all things dwell in their normative state. This being so, when humans see water, there is a way of seeing it as flowing incessantly. That flowing has many times. This is one aspect of people's perceptions. It is said to flow through the earth, flow through the sky, flow upwards, flow downwards, flow through the, the bend and, and flow in nine abys abyssal troughs. So uh, what is water? Just a little more from this by way of introduction. When dragons and fish see water as palaces, it must be like people seeing palaces. They cannot cognize or see them as flowing anymore. The bystanders should tell them, your palaces are flowing water. The dragons and fish would be surprised and doubtful, just as we are when we now hear it said that the mountains are flowing. So one of the starting points for this whole very long essay is the statement by one of our ancient masters in our lineage that the Western mountains travel over the waters. That mountains uh, are constantly flowing. That's not how we usually see mountains. So, um, How do we see the world? How does our human perception tell us about the world? So with Dogen's introduction, I want to talk about uh, an interview I heard from Ed Young, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning science writer. And he has a book called An Immense World, How Animal Speak senses reveal the hidden realm around us. So I'm going to read some of this. The incredible ways in which other animals sense the world around, there are incredible ways in which other animals sense the world around us. At the core of it is a concept called umwelt, the idea that each creature has, his, has its own sensory bubble its own particular sort of sights and sounds and textures and smells that it can perceive, but that other animals might not be able to, to see. Humboldt is a term coined by an Estonian-German zoologist, Jacob von Wexkoll, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, in the early 20th century. The Umwelt is the name for this sensory bubble that all beings have. And just continues, my own well includes colors from red to violet. It includes sounds within a certain frequency range. But for example, the umwelt of my dog includes a lot of smells that I can't perceive. 
It includes a slightly higher range of pitches that I can't hear. Every animal has its own sensory bubble and its own little sliver of this immense world that we live in. So, I want to talk tonight about this and how we sense the world and how we miss how wonderful this world is, where we can. So Edios continues, my eyesight is very sharp, my fingers are very sensitive, but I cannot detect the magnetic field of the earth in the way that a turtle or a songbird can. I can't detect ultraviolet light that bees or actually most other sighted animals can. I cannot detect the electric field surrounding other creatures in the way that a shark or a platypus can. Every creature has its own sensory world. It's only perceiving a thin sliver of the fullness of reality. This is a way of expanding our understanding of the world around us through the eyes and senses and ears of other creatures that we share this planet with. And this is incredibly humble. You see a tiny sliver how wonderful our world is. Our subjective experience of the world feels total, but that's an illusion. We are only getting a small part of what there is to perceive. The mundane and boring aspects of the world to us are actually full of wonder and magic. When I walk my dog, and your dog is named Typo, which is it's a fur writer. When I walk my dog around our neighborhood, by looking at what he's smelling, I understand that there are so much, in, even in the most familiar of streets, that he can perceive, but I cannot. To, to the nose of an albatross, the supposedly featureless ocean is roiling with scented topography. To other insects, the plants around us in our parks and gardens are thrumming with vibrational songs that we cannot hear. The world is full of wonder and magic, and much of it is imperceptible to us. So yes, it's part, an important part of sentition to know humbly that only appreciating a tiny fragment of our wonderful world at any time. And uh, that's appropriate. We function as human type beings. So we function based on seeing and hearing that which is appropriate for humans to see and hear. But to know how much more there is, is important. And Yost goes on to say, we are harming other creatures around us by neglecting their sensory worlds. For example, 
the problems of light and noise pollution, sensory pollution, stimuli that we flood into the world that are distracting and harming other animals around us, and, and that we don't even think of as pollution. But they are problems. Filling the night with light and the quiet with noise, we seriously harm a lot of the other creatures around us. And we need to take that into account. A lot of ecological problems, climate change, for example, being the most obvious, have a kind of runaway momentum to them. They're very hard to address. Even if we stop, for example, greenhouse gas production today, they, look, this climate breakdown will continue. But light and noise pollution go away immediately as soon as we flick a switch. There are problems that we can deal with right now. How do we how do we become aware of how the light that we use or that is in our world or the noise, maybe even in the speaker, can be harmful to others? So he goes on to talk about more about dogs. They live in a world dominated by smell. I am a sighted human. My world is predominantly visual. My dog's world is one of smell. Every day when we go for walks, my dog goes on a sniff walk. And that's a walk that he controls. What he wants to do is smell. He explores intently and enthusiastically this world around him based on what he smells. Dogs are happier and more optimistic and less anxious when they get to use their noses. He sees fewer colors than I do. Dogs do see color. And, you know, I, I don't know how scientists know this, but Apparently, there's a lot of research on this. But, but what the dog sees is just a limited rainbow. A lot of purples and violets will look dark blue. So his rainbow really just goes from yellow to blue with some whites and grays in the middle. And I, I can relate to this personally. I happen to be colorblind. Um, it's not that I can't see colors. I just see them differently than... Most of you do. Is there anybody else here who's colorblind? It's kind of it's a recessive. Uh, Joe. Oh, Joe, you're colorblind too? Hi. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, what the kind of colorblindness that I have is called red-green colorblindness. And what it means is that shades of red and green and brown kind of get mixed up. Doesn't mean I can't see colors, but anyway. So I relate. To, I relate to what Ed used to saying about different beings seeing differently, sensing differently, having different sensory bubbles. We have a, a little puppy now, and she's moves around in the grass, and you know, is smelling something. <laughs> it's very interesting how she smells. So. You know, just to be aware of how little we actually apprehend 
the fullness of this world. How wonderful and magical it is. And yet, you know, uh, if we if we heard and saw and smell everything that all creatures can see and hear and smell, we would be bombarded. I think this is part of what happens with hallucinogens in my experience. And it's wonderful, but it's hard to function um, because we we need to have a limited sense bubble. That's the world he uses unfelt. All, all creatures have that. And yet, if we think that we know what is because we can see uh, what the dog is only smelling, we're, we're missing the reality and the fullness of the world. So the Dogen, back in the 13th century, was talking about this. How different creatures see water in different ways. Fish see, for fish, fish see water the way we see, it, see the air. Maybe there are creatures uh, living in the water who see the air as something exotic, or creatures flying above our our usual realm of air that um, see it differently. So, again, the point of this isn't that we should start to develop our sense of smell, although some people, I don't have a very good sense of smell, I think, but, but some people have better sense of smell than others. Uh, but what is the world? What is reality? So Ben Kami was talking about this in terms yesterday in terms of your Vachara teaching how there are three aspects of how reality exists. How do we take care of our world given that we only can be aware of a partial aspect of it? We can't see uh, what is the example he gives of um, you know, insects see, are aware of the plants around us in a totally different way. He says, thrumming with vibrational songs. So, uh, or he talks about it, a shark or a platypus uh, Detecting electric fields surrounding other creatures. So, I think maybe birds see electrically. And uh, Yoshin, who's a naturalist, can say more about how this all works. But the point is to be, uh, as Edward says, a little bit humble about what we think the world is, to appreciate that the world is much more strange and wonderful. And mysterious than our limited senses allow us to be aware of. So how, how do we treat other beings and other species who we think are, you know, we think some animals are dumb because they don't see the things we do. They can't, can't uh, have opposable thumbs and can't write or, or build things. But they may be very aware of, of us in a different way. There's the story about scientists who were studying 
dolphin language. They were uh, trying to make sounds and trying to hear how speech and, and see how the dolphins reacted. And at some point in this experiment, they realized that the dolphins were also experimenting on them and trying to understand what it was that the people were saying. So, uh, you know, there are many examples. I've talked about this before, about real, very, very intelligent creatures on our planet who we don't usually credit with that. Octopus is a good example. So, how do we practice with this? How do we take care of the world of all these beings? How do we not create sound and uh, light pollution that harm these other beings? So there's a whole lot that we need to, to research and know and understand as a species to be more compassionate all the beings in the world. Of course, this also applies to all the human-type species around us, all the differences. So, uh, again, Ben was talking yesterday about how we tend to objectify people and objectify objects and think that the world is a bunch of dead objects. And in fact, as Andreas has been talking about, animals Different animals have different awarenesses. And, you know, if we think, oh, our, our way of seeing is the only way, and we should just wipe out all those, all those species that uh, don't see the way we see, of course, we would go extinct along with the others. We couldn't survive without the whole biosystem. So that's another language. And this gets back to Dogen. So, in the Mountains and Water Sutra, I'll conclude by reading another part of that. Excuse me. Yeah, okay, so in this in this sutra that this essay that Dogen wrote, he talks about how water sees water and how mountains see the people in the mountains. So just a little bit of this. So it is not just that there is water in the world. There are worlds in the realm of water. This is not only in water. There are also worlds of sentient beings in clouds. There are worlds of sentient beings in wind. There are worlds of sentient beings in fire. There are worlds of sentient beings in earth. There are worlds of sentient beings in phenomena. There are worlds of sentient beings in a single blade of grass. So those of us who've been doing it flower in the sutra reading, heard about that. There are worlds of sentient beings in a single staff. Where there are worlds of sentient beings, Dogen says, there must be the world of Buddhas and Zen adepts and Bodhisattvas. 
please uh, meditate on this principle very thoroughly. In the case of mountains, it goes on, there are mountains concealed in jewels. There are mountains concealed in marshes. There are mountains concealed in the sky. There are mountains concealed in mountains. There's a study which conceals mountains in concealment. An ancient Buddha said, mountains are mountains, water, waters are waters. This is saying, this saying does not say that mountains are mountains. It says mountains are mountains. Therefore, you should investigate the mountains. But he also says somewhere in this essay that mountains love the people who live in them. So, going beyond Antiochus and his unfelt for various creatures, how is it that mountains are aware of beings in them? How is it that the water is aware of the fish and the dragons, the ghosts that might go through them, or humans that might wait? So to see how really fully wonderful reality is, we have to consider other beings. Of course, that means also other beings. And we have this terrible habit as human beings to think of other beings as something less than worthy of appreciating. Now we can we can separate beings into all kinds of categories. There's Chicagoans and Californians and Alaskans and Mississippians and you know so we can dismiss any one of those and not honor beings in all states. Anyway, this awareness of the multiplicity of beings, of human beings, not just Buddhists, but Muslims and Christians and Jews and Zoroastrians and, and not just Americans, but Syrians and Afghan people and Pakistanis and so forth. How do we recognize that all beings have their way of seeing the world? So, um, that's enough for me to say. I'm interested in any comments, questions, reflections that you have on any of this. So, if you're there, reflections or comments on the multiplicity of beings and their sense bubbles. Yes, Kyushin, please. Well, one thing that comes to mind is um, that, um, well, I have too many thoughts coming to my brain at the same time. <laughs> to do a little traffic direction. Um, we can, we can, um, 
improve our senses with humans, uh, I think Zen practice is one of the ways that we do our, our senses get dulled by habit and ways we live our life. And so we can learn to pay more attention to our senses. I do some Zen practices. Okay, I, I'm a little bit more loud. Please. I'm sorry. That's okay. I, I think we. My hearing is limited. Mine is too, and my hearing is falling out every time I do a prostration. Um, <laughs> we, we humans, uh, I agree. Different different creatures have different sensual abilities, but we humans tend to not um, use our senses as well as we could, and we can cultivate better use of our senses. And I think Zen practice is one way to do that. Paying it, we we talk about paying attention, paying attention to what we see, what we hear, what we smell, what we taste, what we touch. So I just want to say that by way of introducing a commercial for a walk this Saturday where we will be outside paying attention to our senses, shutting our mouths, and um, paying attention to what is around us in nature, and if we're moved, write a poem about it. It's a very good discipline for training your senses, and it's a way of awakening your senses and then getting more compassion or understanding of how is that tree existing in winter time uh so or that bird or that whatever anyway sorry for that very uh <laughs> I had too many thoughts as you were talking, so I couldn't organize them fast enough. At what time is this call? Oh, it's at 9 o'clock. And if you want to know more about it, just ask me afterwards, and I'll be in the neighborhood. Or, or else, you, uh, please just email info at ancientdragon.org, yeah. and it will be forwarded to Gyoshin. She can give you more, exam, more, more information. Thank you very much, Gyoshin. How, how, is it quarterly now or monthly? You yes, that? quarterly. This is the challenging winter walk. We don't know how it's going to be. Last last January, we were going to walk at Graceland Cemetery, and there was so much snow that the cemetery was closed. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we'll see. It won't be a problem. Thank you for doing that. That's yeah. Um, there was. Um, a teacher at San Francisco Zen Center when I was starting to practice there called Charlotte Selber, and she did these sensory awareness workshops, which is in the same in the same uh, mode in a way, or a similar mode. But they did things like uh, assignment, like holding a rock and just feeling the rock and feeling what it felt feels like it. Um, and other things like that, just being aware of uh, so-called objects and how they feel us. So yeah, this is a very important part of sense practice, of Zen practice, and sense practice. So thank you very much, Gershon. If you have anything more to say as we progress, please feel free. Wait. Joe has his hand up. Joe, thank you. I Picking up on, on what Gyoshin said, yes, I, I very much believe that uh, there are ways that, that uh, 
I'm sure humans and perhaps other other sentient beings uh, also can uh, do to uh, augment our our our, our sense uh, capacities. The the, the South uh, Sea Islanders uh, were brilliant navigators, and they didn't have uh, radar or sonar or any of that stuff. They but they uh, they learned um, by just lying on their rafts and and paying attention to the uh, the, the tides and, and to the uh, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of the the wave the waves in the uh, ocean. Maybe somebody could come up with a word for me. Uh, but the uh, uh, just just by feeling uh, the the change in balance when when the certain current. Uh, uh, was was in a certain part of the world, they would know where they were without a compass or anything else, and learn how to navigate uh, that way. And uh, I, I think um, we have some tools that uh, we could, uh, uh, that we have availed ourselves of. Uh, drugs are hazardous, but they work. And uh, <laughs> uh, meditation, of course. Uh, you know, some reading, uh, uh, good, good teaching. Um, and, uh, when, when, um, one of the ways that we, uh, it, that we increase our sense capacities in the West, uh, I have, uh, a, a, a red shift, which means I see colors. Everything's a little bit less red than a color, color normal person. However, if I were to get one of these infrared cameras, I could virtually see uh, uh, things in the infrared uh, spectrum or in the or in the red spectrum, and we we have these tools at our at our uh, disposal, and so there are there are ways to um, there, there there are there are ways to get a, a little taste of of what expanded sensory experience is like. Thank you, Joe. Uh, your point about your example of South Sea Islanders brings up that. Uh, I think in different cultures, different people have, have communal different sensory bubbles. Of course, we have our individual sensory bubbles. And this was part of what uh, Ben was talking about yesterday, uh, recommending his talk, and it gets posted on, on the website. But um, we also have kind of communal, conventional sensory bubbles. We tend to see things as a as a culture or as a community, maybe even as a song, in certain ways. And uh, South Sea Islanders, for example, or uh, Eskimos, or, uh, you know, different, different people from different cultures see things differently. So maybe this is our problem with Russia and China. They see things differently than we do. Anyway, um, Sophia, did, were you going to say something? No, oh. Okay, I thought I saw that. So, other comments or responses or reflections or questions you have? Oh, yes. Oh, what's Hi. your name? Well, I'm, I'm Lindsay. Um, oh, what's your name? Lindsay. Hi, Lindsay. Hi. I was just thinking when you were asking how can we take care of a world that we can't even fully sense? And I was just thinking we can take care of the beings who can sense. The world differently. Um, and I appreciate you sharing about dolphins too. It's my favorite animal. And I've just always been amazed at how intelligent they are. Um, and also just made me think a lot about 
the animals and beings around us and how we can take better care of them. Yeah, very much so. And animals and plants and to actually respect them as fellow beings rather than as something to objectify and take advantage of. Amber. Yeah, I wanted to add to that. Um, just the how, at least in my upbringing, I don't know if anybody else would relate. Um, I would. I was taught about how humans were kind of given the earth and that we were to be uh, like caretakers of it. Um, but but in my experience, I've I've noticed that that can kind of be like dominating over it rather than caretaking. Um, so it's really interesting to have this perspective, not of being superior to the earth and all the beings in it, but being um, a part of a whole and that we're all like have a piece of it and we are superior, a superior piece in this system but um, one with it. And uh, I think that's... Um, a better way to take care of other beings is to understand that. So I really appreciate what she said and what this talk is about. Thank you so much. That's, that's so important. Thank you for bringing that in. That I think in our, about to say Western culture, that's so many different things, but uh, there is in, um, well, in, in a lot of Judeo-Christian uh, thinking, there's this idea of humans as dominant stewards and caretakers, as you said, of the natural world. And Buddhism and, and indigenous uh, wisdom see it the other way around, if anything, that the earth takes care of us. Of course, we are products of the earth. And, and it's, it is very kind of uh, hierarchical or patriarchal or whatever to think, oh, we, we're, we're the dominant ones. We have control. We know we know how dogs and cats and dolphins and octopuses and trees and rivers should be. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a bizarre idea. And as Gershon was saying, the more we sit, the more we are humbled in the same way that Elias talks about when we realize the limit, our limitations. That's a big part of Zen teaching. To realize our limitations, and that and and importantly, that right in our limitations, we are Buddhists. We are. We have this ultimate possibility of universal liberation, but it's not over others. It's together with. So thank you for that. Emma. Okay. Well, I was going to say. Um, we have these ideas, you know, to the point of our own perils at this point. Um, it's very much a dominant, you know, American, maybe white culture idea that we have any control over things or we should have control over things. And we are really becoming maladaptive with our ways of perceiving. And, and I think it's going to be increasingly important for all of us to allow in more viewpoints from diverse, you know, spectrum of, of human perception. 
Yes, thank you. The idea of control can be very pernicious. Of course, we all have things we can control you know, within limited realms, but uh, when we think we can control you know, other beings or other countries or um, you know, even within ourselves, part of us also teaches us is that I can't even control my thoughts a lot of the time. So to think in terms of allowing and opening to hearing others, not just dogs and dolphins, but other parts of ourselves, rather than controlling, Ben was saying yesterday, that the ultimate is not to believe what you think. So how do we settle into, so Zazen is this great tool to help us settle into uh, just being together with dogs and dolphins and trees and rivers. And that's hard work. That's a lot of work. That's a lifetime's work. And what it means is that we can as we're going to say in our Bodhisattva vows, free all beings, enter all Dharma gates, cut through all delusions, realize the Buddha way. So, Yoshin, I want to give you the last word if you have anything else to add to all of this. Oh. <laughs> As, as our as our resident naturalist and conservationist, and you know so much more about all this than I do. Um, I guess I would just say, um, I'll go back to paying attention. So I saw six different species of clocks today. Believe it or not, right around where I live, which is not too far from here. I do a little north. But people don't know how much nature there is right here. And it, so you don't have, if you want to start paying attention, you don't have to go like to Samoa or somewhere, <laughs> Brazil, which would be great places to go. But um, yeah, it's all with us here. It's, it's, uh, we're, we're surrounded by it if we let ourselves, um, if we let ourselves, if we open ourselves up to it. So go outside, be with it. Actually, it's inside too. So there's a lot of different species of stuff in this room. <laughs> They're just small. <laughs> yeah. There's lots of things we can't see. Yeah. They're part of our world. That's part of our world. And we are part of our world. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Fun to talk about nature, huh? People think nature's only in the summertime. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was walking near my house today and looking up at the trees and the leafy canopies are most almost all gone now. But I saw seven different birds' nests. One was yeah. small and others were large. And yeah, those nests are so bad. So let's close with the Bodhisattva Vast, then we'll have announcements and then.